The following podcast contains content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Suicide, among other subjects, is discussed explicitly. If you are experiencing suicidal ideation, call 1-800-273-8255. That's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. 1-800-273-8255. The host of this podcast is not a mental health expert nor is he a doctor. No mental health experts were consulted during the production of this episode. Every part of this episode has been approved for release by its guest, LJT. This is Irregular People. In today's episode, I talk with LJT, author of the book Practical Blasphemy, The New Testament. It's a fictionalized memoir of her suicidal act, and her subsequent treatment at a psych ward. Before we get to the conversation, allow me to read you the description of the book from the website of its publisher, Anti-Book Club. Amelia Adams, besieged with mental illness that no doctor seems to know how to treat, carefully plans and carries out her suicide. Bleeding in the bathtub of her Chicago apartment, she calls 911 so her roommates don't have to come home to find her body. To her horror, EMTs get there sooner than she bargains for. Save her life, save is in quotes here, and deposit her in a psychiatric ward. Amid the relentless onslaught of unwelcome thoughts, visions, and sound, including ghostly children who urge her to hurt herself, and a vicious blind rabbit dipped in tar, Amelia must confront her waking nightmare in a place without escape. This is a personal tale of survival when it is least wanted, and a harrowing indictment of our society's failure to help those who live with mental illness. Practical Blasphemy, the New Testament, heralds a necessary voice in American fiction, one that sheds much needed light on what it means to live with mental illness and, just possibly, provides a glimmer of hope to those who struggle daily. Elle and I spoke for three and a half hours. It was a wonderful conversation filled with as much laughter as anything else, honestly. Elle is brilliant and biting and funny as hell, and I, I wish I could include all of our conversation here so you could really get to know her, but I really want to focus in and let you hear about her incredible book, her experience writing it, and the experiences that led her to do so. We talk about her writing itself, mental illness, her experiences in psych wards, and her views on our inabilities to help those in need. There's a lot packed into this conversation, and as I did when reading the book, if you need a break, take a break, but listen to this conversation, and then read the book. So, L, um, I realize that this question probably has many answers, but why did you write this book? <laughs> it's um, it's complicated. Um, when I was in the hospital, um, I I was talking in a group on Visitors' Day. My father was there. And Susanna was telling a story in her ridiculous Shirley Henderson voice. And it was, <laughs> I don't want to give anything away, but it was the evading arrest story. Oh, right, right. You can give away whatever you want to, but. <laughs> and um, my dad was cracking up laughing. He was laughing so hard. And he turned and he looked at me and I, I had no ability to emote. Mm. I couldn't make any facial expressions. I couldn't breathe. I was, it was, I I was dysfunctional Hmm. and he saw me like that. And he looked at me and he said, 
one day you're going to write about this. And I thought to myself, no, that'll never happen. Because my last journal entry, the very first page of Practical Blasphemy is a to-do list. The to-do list that begins the book is a list of daily chores, cleaning, shopping, donating clothes. And this list came from Elle's real journal. The last task on the to-do list, however, reads, die, 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 99 times in all caps. That to-do list was the last journal entry I've ever written. So I decided to kill myself, wrote that journal entry to-do list, and then never wrote in a journal ever again. Wow. That's part of the reason I wanted to start it with that list, because I had been writing in that journal for 10 years, and that was my last entry. That was the last thing I had to say to the world. Yeah. Make sweet tea, clean windows, pick up pork loin, take the dog on a walk. That was what I was concerned with. So that's why I wanted to start it with that. And so that you immediately are put in the mindset of someone has just made a decision. The first chapter of the book is the scene in which Amelia tries to kill herself. She wants her body to be collected so that her roommates won't have to come home to it. So she tries to time out her 911 call perfectly. But the EMTs get there much quicker than she anticipated and they prevent her death. She's taken, fighting the whole way to a hospital and stitched up by a calm, empathetic physician's assistant. That's chapter two. She refuses anesthetic. Amelia is then committed to a psych ward. Chapter four is called processing. And when I asked Elle about this, it led us into a discussion about the differences and similarities between psych wards. Reading about Amelia being processed into the psych ward and the way she is treated like an animal is not only enlightening, it is chilling. It is accurate. To tell you the truth, I I didn't write anything about processing when I went in the first time. Uh, I didn't remember much of it. Mm. Uh, I remember being checked. I remember, but it was sort of a blur. Um, I was obviously in a super, super fucked up mental state. I was hallucinating and all kinds of stuff. So what happened was um, right before I finished my final edit of Practical Blasphemy to send to Anti-Book Club, I ended up back in the hospital again. And this was a nice place Hmm. that I chose. And that was what happened to me there. Wow. So technically that is something that I've added from a different experience. Um, So I guess that's not really like, I'm not sure how true to the story it is, but I assume it's similar everywhere. They strip you down. They check your private parts. It's dehumanizing. um, And they cut yeah. your shoelaces out. They take your drawstrings out. They won't let you wear a bra. They won't let you wear underwear. It's just like, 
it's a really humiliating process. It's very dehumanizing. And so that happens um, not just in the state wards where, you know, everything's to save a penny. That also happens in the nice places. Yeah, I mean, it it felt to me similar to how some inmates are treated in prisons in America. Very much so. Very much so. You know, and and, you know, a hundred years ago wouldn't have been much different. They would have de-lost you and shaved your head and stuck you in there and beat you with hoses. Yeah, or lobotomized you with an ice pick. Yeah, exactly. I wanted it to be really accurate. So as soon as I got out of the hospital that time, I sat down at the computer and I, I edited two things. Most of what I edited in the book was actually taken out. The crazy shit, mm. that's all real. All that crazy shit happened. But there are two things I added. One is I wanted to make sure that I had the most accurate representation of the processing that I could manage. Mm. Um, so I that was exactly what happened to me. And the other was, it has to do with the television. So in the beginning... She mentions that the TV is stuck on the Catholic channel. That happened to me in a different psych ward. Oh, my God. For 72 hours, it was stuck on the Catholic channel. But these idiots, so they bolted to the wall with plexiglass, right? You can't get it, so you can't unplug it. Hmm. You can't turn it off. You can't can't turn the volume down. You have to find the remote. So the remote, they're trying to deal with the remote. They're replacing the controls. They're trying to do the batteries. 72 hours of these fucking nuns and like, I don't know, little Irish orphans like reciting the rosary for 72 hours, Calvin. Uh, it was uh, it was like some kind of sick cosmic joke. Like I, it almost made me believe in God. It almost made me believe in God to like, there is a God and he's totally fucking with me right now. <laughs> so that little detail that I put in that, that actually was added. So I have to be honest about that. That was added. So Elle's story about the Catholic channel and the psych ward TV led us to the use of Christianity in group therapy in American psych wards. This kind of group therapy is a big part of the book. Amelia's relationship with her faith had deteriorated over the years, mostly because she felt betrayed by God. She felt she had done everything she could to gain God's mercy, but was still tortured by her demons, for lack of a better word. So in the book, she fights against the religiosity of group therapy. I saw similarities between the religious aspects of group therapy in the psych ward of the book and that of AA. I think it's a it has to do with helplessness. You know, that's what it comes down to in AA is I'm helpless. I can't do it by myself. I need help from something otherworldly. It's Dumbo's magic feather. Mm. No. Yeah. And I, I think for some people it can be helpful. Um, I recently, went to a TMS consultation, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a a treatment for depression. And I went and the doctor who ran it, who was head of 
Vanderbilt Teaching College, Psychiatric Teaching College, had a Bible open on his desk in his in his office with me. And I couldn't see which verse it was. I assume it wasn't the one about the horse semen um, or the dragon, but um, Never but know. it was on there. And, you know, I just got to the point where I just pretend now. Really? Because I know enough about the Bible. I, I was a Christian. I was very, obviously, if you read, um, I, I think actually this is something worth saying about practical blasphemy is that um, there's a different understanding of self-harm. So a lot of times when people think of self-harm, they think of someone who, you know, cuts themselves, quote, for attention, which, Mm -hmm. look, there are lots of ways to get attention, all right? If you're cutting yourself for attention, like, that is some serious need for attention. Like you, you're hurting, you're hurting if you're there. So I don't think we should deride that, but it's different from that. For Amelia, it's not about, uh, having seeing the blood or seeing or having scars to cover up in the future or anything like that. For her, uh, atonement for her, it's saying, I am willing to sacrifice my, my, my flesh as Christ did. I'm willing to suffer as Christ did in order to earn healing. How can I be healed? You know? And, and she gets to the point where if I can't be healed by that much faith, then I can't be healed at all. It's impossible. So it's an account of an honest faith, honest faith that is corroded and corrupted and becomes just sort of an uh, instrument of torture. And then Amelia has to fight against constant proselytizing. Constant. And not just from the staff, from the patients too. Yeah, that's true. Nurse Rhonda um, coming in and re-stitching her stitches without anesthetic and saying, you're not praying hard enough. Yeah. God always answers the prayers of the faithful. Sometimes the answer is just no. Elle mentioned to me in an email that she wanted to talk about one particular problem, one particular rule that is implemented in many psych wards, one that Elle disagrees with. And it has to do with the fact that no matter who we are, mentally ill or otherwise, we need human connection. There's this idea of non-fraternization. That's not just between staff and patients. That's also amongst patients. And I've seen this in other psych wards too. They don't want us to get too close to each other. And I I think it's really healthy for patients to feel open with one another, especially since they're forced into group therapy every single day and group therapy is just like i'm just speaking for myself here i'm speaking for myself here okay i'm just saying it's a circle jerk Mm. i can't stand it it's just uh it's masturbatory i can't stand group therapy for some people it really helps for me it makes me feel ridiculous i can't stand it Mm. um but uh having you have to have some kind of connection there because you're there. You, you can't have your cell phone. 
You can't have the internet. You have no access to the outside world. You can get visitors twice a week. There's no, t- I mean, the television there is, is restricted. Hmm. Um, the activities that you do are restricted. You know, your meals are restricted. Everything is completely under the control of the ward. And the only thing that's not in under control of the ward is your relationships to the other patients. Hmm. And I found out like there's this silly little made up language that uh, I my mom used to speak with us when we were kids. Like when we were in public, she would fuss at us in this little made up language. Hmm. And I found out there's another girl on the ward who spoke it, spoke the same thing. She called it Abby Debbie. She called it another name, but it was the same language. And she turned out to be like a really good friend hmm. after we got out. Wow. And yeah. Yeah. And so I think there's such importance to having a support system that's not going to chart you because you can make friends with a behavior tech, but they've got a clipboard in their hands and a pen and are literally writing down everything that you say. If they're good at their job, if they're not, they're on their phone. Wow. I'm just saying that's majority are just on their phone, but the ones who do their jobs are writing down everything that you say. So there's no opportunity for friendship. And since you're so disconnected from the outside world, you're really in need of some sort of human connection since it's inappropriate to find that with the workers there, you have to find it with the patients. Mm. That's been my experience in every ward I've been in is that you know that joke that um, uh, is people say like, that's like saying you're the coolest person at the table of the psych ward. Like, that's a real uh-uh. thing. There's definitely a cool table at the psych ward. Really? Oh, yes. And I am always at the head of that table. I am the coolest bitch in the psych ward. <laughs> <laughs> Well, to go on my joke there, there really is a cool table at the psych ward and there really is a pecking order and mm. there really an importance about friendship and communication amongst people who are undergoing similar experiences that cannot be gotten through group therapy and drawing robots and art. Right. You know? It goes beyond that. There has to be a human connection. And I will say that I've been very disappointed everywhere I've been that there's so little interaction with therapists, qualified therapists and psychiatrists and psychologists that um, in the book, I think I saw Dr. Stevens three times. Yeah. Um, In the ward, I saw him four times in a month a month and in that ward i didn't even have a therapist i only had group therapy and art therapy it's such a mess and i'm really lucky actually because i have really good insurance and can afford to go to nice places now oh yeah and there's much of the country with no insurance and well they're just homeless or in jail right i mean Exactly. Half of is mentally ill people. 
According to the Treatment Advocacy Center, as of 2016, approximately 20% of inmates in jails and 15% of inmates in state prisons were estimated to have serious mental illness. TAC also states that, quote, jails and prisons are now commonly known as the new asylums. This issue deserves its own episode or its own show entirely. For Elle, the fact that she is able to receive proper treatment means avoiding possible imprisonment or death. Amelia suffers from a torrent of constant voices and music in her head. Voices, as we'll learn, may be the wrong word to describe them. The way that Elle writes the voices in the book is one of the most important and compelling things about the work as a novel. I've never read anything like it before. As a reader, it really feels like you're being pummeled by Amelia's voices. They jump off the page at you, they they shout at you, they're screaming at you, they're whimpering. But it's also kind of confusing as a reader, so I asked Elle, okay, is this Amelia or is this the voices and are they the same and is there a difference? And then at some point, Amelia says, you know, they're all a part of me. Yeah. Well, the answer to your questions, all of those questions is yes. That's the answer is yes. All of those questions, the answer is yes. When I asked Elle to describe her experience with voices in her head, she reminded me that Amelia does so in the book, that that was Elle's best attempt at describing her own experience. So Elle read the passage aloud. So I'm just going to read this passage. Um, it's from page 26. She's in uh, she's in processing with the Tweedledum and Tweedledee twins. And um, they ask her about the voices. And, and I had a psychiatrist ask me multiple times, do you hear voices? Do you hear voices? And I said, no, 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 no. They're not voices. I can tell the difference between you talking to me mm. and a voice in my head. But you know how people are like, I have that little angel on my shoulder and that little devil on my shoulder. And I have those little voices in my head. Okay. So people know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm talking about, but to infinity. So this is just, um, this is just straight out of the book. I'll just read it. Um, I can't really describe them as voices. They're more like very specific, unique perspectives that appear as loud thoughts, but they all seem to be me as a gestalt. So I have all these perspectives. Some agree with some, some disagree with everyone, and some are cowards who can never make a decision. They hate my favoritism, so a lot of decisions I put into the hands of chance. Like the other day, I was walking to a pottery museum. And one part said, you're tired. You should take the shortcut. But then another was like, shortcut? You're a fucking fat ass. There's no way we're taking a shortcut. So my main perspective, and to take a break from the text, that's me, L, my main perspective, decided to walk in the opposite direction of the old lady in front of us. And that settled the matter. You're still a fat ass. It is not as if I am... Thinking over the problem or considering other options, it's as if I'm in a room full of people arguing. Amelia pauses. I can almost always tell the difference between the voices in my head and the real world, but some are malicious. 
Sometimes I hear whispers and curses when walking down the aisle at the grocery store and figures hulk in the corner of my mind telling me to tear out the eyes. Destroy the eyes! Plus things like hearing the doorbell ring even though we don't have a doorbell. Telephones. Seeing bats flying at my face. Mailboxes that move. Reflections that don't. There's this crow that follows me around. I can't taste my food and I spent three months convinced I was pregnant with a dead fetus. Everything looks two-dimensional and the constant music can be very distracting. That's basically the end of that clip. Um, well, thank you for reading that. Yeah, I, I can usually tell the difference between you know, reality and fantasy as far as the voices are concerned, but that doesn't make them any less mean. They're so mean. Luckily, medicated. I don't hear them very often. Uh, usually it's just me. And um, I'm in control. Mm. And even now, I've... I've been recently going through an episode and even now that I am joined by a few more of those I I can tell the difference but I, it does make it easier to be able to tell the difference for sure for sure because if I had been like Pedro Pedro's a character in the in the novel yeah he's a character in the novel he has schizophrenia he can't tell the difference between reality and fantasy at all mm. at least I know the difference I'm still subjected to the torment of those voices or sometimes the balm of those voices. Some of them are very kind. I love Picasso's guitarist and also the Middle Eastern woman with the long, beautiful hair. And um, there, there's, there are fields. I, I remember this, this particular image, not image, experience, this particular experience is probably the thing that I miss the most about how it is to live on medication now. And it's a field, an endless field of angels slowly flapping their wings and the sound of the flapping just the sound of it this otherworldly I can hear it I can hear it in my head as clear as I can hear when you respond to me I can hear it used to be able to hear it now that's lost to me Amelia mentions that too and so does um Another character in the book. Maybe it's Pedro. It is Pedro. He mentions his best friend. Yeah, losing his best friend. Yeah. For Amelia, the music in her head is her best friend. Half of the time. The other half, it's the complete opposite. And LJT gives you a window into that experience. We talked a lot about the music, and we got there by talking about how Elle so brilliantly uses all of the senses in her writing and how it's really connected to her own lived experience. Personally, I found the book to be very visual, or rather that Elle painted so well with all of the senses that the book came to life in my head visually. Well, I think 
that's interesting that you say that because I am not a particularly visual person. Hmm. Um, and I try to use imagery to me that goes beyond the visual in, into the sort of intangible, yeah. um, practical blasphemy. There are so many references to smells. Yeah, I know. When I say the ointment smelled like the inside of an empty refrigerator, to me, I smell that smell. But to some readers, they see that refrigerator. Mm, yeah. So I think it's just textured all around. I try to make it well-rounded in, in the number of senses that I use uh, particularly because, you know, mental disorders cause some senses to heighten and some to deaden. Mm. Um, and like, I, I have a really big problem with taste, my sense of taste. I can't really taste food at all. Mm. So sometimes I just sit at the dinner table and cry because I can't taste anything. Mm. Well, and there's uh, there's the part in the book when Amelia can suddenly taste food. Yeah, that is a thing. And let me tell you what, I love that medication because mm. <laughs> <laughs> I need a bump in it. Uh, when I when I get a bump in it every once in a while, um, I'll suddenly be able to taste everything. And it's amazing. Like, oh, my God, food tastes so good. It's incredible. But then, you know, if I start having, you know, blankness or a zombie-like thing, then I have to reduce it. And then mm. my sense of taste. So it's kind of a give and take on that one. There are a few times in the book when Amelia's senses seem to connect or, or cross. Um, she'll, she'll look at something, you know, see it with her eyes, but also feel a physical sensation because of it. And there's one that really hit me, the, the jagged edge of something. The grout of the jacuzzi tub. Yes. Yes. It happens later with the towel as well. This is a, it's a real thing that happens to me and I don't know what to call it. Um, but, you know, sometimes I dry off my left calf and I can feel it in the back of my neck and it feels like uh, mm. pins and needles. Um, but yeah, things like that seem unrelated sensorily, um, are interesting to me. They cause me, you know, in synesthesia, we think of like, oh, the number five is orange. Right, right. E, the number five is orange, and the number two is yellow, and the number seven is purple. And like, but but not all numbers have a color, hmm. you know. And certain things, you know, certain keys smell like different things, but that doesn't mean that I have some sort of like magical ability to, you know, it's a, it's a curse when you see something like a jagged edge, jaudy grout, it hurts you. It hurts you just to see it physically hurts you just to see it. But I, I try to include, you know, obviously sound is a big thing oh. in practical blasphemy. Yeah. I just found out today by reading with the soundtrack that, man, there are so many different ways to experience it as a reader. Yeah. What do you think about the soundtrack? Man, I, okay. I could have edited it exactly to be exactly where it's supposed to be. Like in one scene, she's only supposed to be hearing one particular noise, like a right. four meter clip. 
you know, and I did some editing, but I couldn't upload it to YouTube and I couldn't get it right. And then the fucking advertisers and I was just, ah, but I think it is still worth it. Totally worth it. Okay. So tell me what you thought about the soundtrack. I didn't want to read a book with a prescribed soundtrack. I don't want to be told how to read a book. I want to read with whatever music or no music that I want to. And so I didn't, you know, the first time I just read the book. But Elle really pushed me to try it with the soundtrack on another read. And I'm really glad I did. Because Amelia describes in great detail the songs that pop into her head in certain moments, reading about it while hearing it brought me into the story in a new and really intense way. I felt more like I was inside of Amelia's mind. Music for Amelia is both a torture and a tether. Sometimes she is held captive by the music, while at other times she retreats on purpose into chosen songs to escape either the voices or something outside of herself. Amelia's brain just picked up the either perfect or worst song possible for the particular moment. (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. It's a gift and it's a curse. And it is both equal measure, in equal measure. When it really clicked for me was Ravel, page 41. Oh, when she enters her room for the first time. The line is, quote, an orderly knocks on the door, robbing her of Ravel's empathy. And that that's kind of a moment of how the music in her head it can be comforting. And Yes, absolutely. Uh, especially... When you see her starting to go into dysphoria uh, and the music becomes aggressive and that kind of thing, it, it goes both ways. So um, when when she's getting her uh, when she's getting her arms sewn up, and mm. there's a song "Nobody's Fault but My Own" by Beck. That particular version of that song, you know, it gives her comfort. And then the bitch comes in the room and ruins everything. And, you know, so there there are definitely times. And after she's on medication, when she's with Charlie in that scene, she hears like an echo of what that is, an echo of what the music used to be. the soundtrack made me feel almost like I was watching a movie. You know, when I wrote it, I, um, I, I did write it as a screenplay originally, and I definitely um, put music in there with intent. Um, but also, I made sure to mu- use music that I specifically associated with that memory, So there are several chapters that have no music in it at all because I I didn't want to just like add in a song at random just to be interesting. Like I wanted, you know, it to be truthful. And so when she's talking about Soundgarden and, you know, what really kills me is that some of these artists that I wrote in the book are dead now from suicide. Chris Cornell hung himself. And, you know, it goes back to that line. We knew, we knew and let them die anyway. Someone asked me recently if I had ever uh, told anyone 
that I had wanted to kill myself before I made the decision to do it. And I was like, yes, I told everyone Everyone knew. I made jokes about it. That that thing with the CD labeled death mix, that's a real thing. I did not exaggerate that. I made a CD, labeled it death mix, and put in the songs that I intended to die to two weeks before I tried to attempt suicide. Hmm. And listened to it with my roommates and fiancé. And nobody said a word. Do you think that's just an inability to admit, a fear, uh, uh, this must be a joke? I think it's grooming. Uh, There's a term when predators, uh, sexual predators... Uh, start to say things and touch people in certain ways in, and they start at a very light level and then it gradually intensifies until it's something out of control and then illegal and immoral and hateful and evil. Um, I think that the joking and the, um, the mentions and the what ifs and that kind of thing. I think it's a type of psychological grooming to get people used to the idea that you're going to kill yourself. Like, I I think it's an attempt to warn Hmm. uh, without reaching for help. But for some reason, there's a something wrong with how people take in the, the the grooming and the warning it's a there's a denial or something yeah well it's so gradual it happens so gradually that it becomes normalized mm. like there's this whole thing normalize this normalize that and i'm like maybe not i mean maybe we shouldn't normalize some things maybe some things we should uh we should change Elle mentioned a few times that she originally wrote Practical Blasphemy as a screenplay, and I asked her if she would allow the book to be made into a movie one day. I am very concerned with the way that Hollywood glamorizes mental illness. Mm. So part of the reason I wrote Practical Blasphemy was to put some truth into art and say, you know what, when you watch Girl Interrupted and they have, like, fucking curtains and lamps with cords and shit like Mm. that's not how it is that's not what it's like in a high security ward you know that's never shown on screen so part of me wants just for the you know verisimilitude to to say yes make practical blasphemy a movie it needs to be what's that what is the line People would think differently about it if they knew how gross it looks. Mm. Like, what do we do when we see suicides in movies? We, we, we put the razor blade up to their wrists and then we cut away to some sort of like, 
you know, image to the side of the room and we make this tearing paper sound and then there's blood running down the sink. It looks gross. It looks fucking gross. Like things come out of you. It's gross. Mm. Yeah. And the way you, the way you describe it in the book, Amelia says like, they don't tell you it's this gross. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think we need more of that. And so for that reason, yes, I do. I would like to see Practical Blasphemy made into a movie. It would have to be true to the book for me to sign off on it. But at the same time, I don't want anyone going around being like, oh, I'm so like Amelia Adams. Like sometimes I get songs stuck in my head for days. Mm. Like I don't want that either. Like, okay, when Oliver Stone made uh, Natural Born Killers, Mm. he wanted to make the point that we gawk at and just masturbate to these vicious killers and these terrible people. He wanted to make a point about the way that media treats those people Mm. and, and what happened. Oh my God, I'm so like Mickey and Mallory Knox. You know, yeah. oh, that movie's so fucking cool. You know, it's not supposed to be cool. It's supposed to hurt you. I mentioned Joker, a film I was blown away by, and I wanted Elle's opinion. I'm glad I asked. Well, I think I ha- I have to address the big two Jokers here. So... The first being Heath Ledger. Now, I have always been afraid of clowns ever since I was a child. I was afraid of clowns. And Mm. I have walked out of movies because there were clowns in them. I have walked out of subway cars on Halloween because there are clowns in them. Um, I, I have nightmares, terrible nightmares teeth, the blood, whatever. So I I had a terrible fear of clowns. And then I went to see The Dark Knight in a theater and it cured me of my colorphobia. What? Well, stood that a clown was actually only a representation of insanity, which was the thing that I Mm. feared most in myself. So the walking around, the the unpredictability, the self-harm for the amusement of others, the dead skin, the bloody mouth, the dying hair, the sad eyes, all of it, all of it represented insanity to me. And that was what I feared most of myself. And once I understood that, never afraid of clowns again, had no problem, no problem. Wow. Heath Ledger, also gone. He cured me, <laughs> me uh. and my my fear of clowns because I understood that it wasn't the clown that I was afraid of. It was myself. It was the clown in myself. And when you read Practical Blasphemy, all those references to the Jack in the Box and everybody's clown, all that stuff, <clears throat> that comes with very real fear inside of myself. So I was really worried that Joker starring Joaquin Phoenix would um, contribute to Hollywood's romanticization of mental illness. And I was wrong. 
It was wonderfully done. It was brilliantly acted. And I just saw in it, I, I can't describe to you how hard those words hit for me mm. when I saw him write down the worst part of having a mental illness is that people expect you to act like you don't. Mm. And that is the truest fucking thing. That is so true because I go to work every day and I do my job to the best of my ability and it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of energy and I do it when I can, but some days I can't. And I try to be a good wife and I try to keep the house clean and make dinner and do all that wifey stuff as well. But sometimes I can't brush my teeth, you know? So it's, um, when I saw that portrayal of the clown, I related, I was in the place to relate to that. I feel like I, if I was still afraid of clowns and I had seen that, I would have thought like differently about it. I'm not sure how, but knowing that it was looking at a picture of myself in one of the infinite facets of personality I have in my head, one of those is that guy. Mm. And the inability to control what comes out of you. I mean, it is just a fantastic film. He absolutely deserved the Oscar. And so did Heath Ledger. Both did in totally different ways. And I'm glad that it didn't destroy Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix Uh is a very cerebral actor. You know, he'll say, I leave it at the door. I do not take it home with me. I don't method act. I don't do any of that bullshit. Mm. So um, it was really it was really interesting to see that they had two totally different methods, two totally different messages, yeah. and yet both attained brilliance. It was twisted and it was malformed and it was disturbing and it was... Everything that, you know, I think DC, and I hate to go DC versus Marvel here, but like DC, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a comic book movie, I think is what my point is. It wasn't a comic book movie. It was a really amazing film. Yes, I agree. But the quote, that quote will stick with me forever. And I actually quoted it to my husband the other day because he asked how I was doing. I'm having a rough time right now, and and I I just said, um, you know, the worst part is that people expect you to act like you don't. That's all I said was just that second half of the quote. He knew what I meant. He knew what I meant. Well, it's the depths. You know, I'm Adolf Hitler, I am Mother Teresa, I am Jesus Christ, Mm. I am Jeffrey Dahmer, I am all, and everyone is, I don't know if everyone has access to that, or maybe he's Mm. right, maybe geneticist is right, and our genetics determine everything, I, I don't know, but I do know 
that there is a part of me that happens at this moment <clears throat> to be um, a very loud, opinionated part of me that believes that I am evil, rancid, garbage. So you can chalk that up to genetics and say, oh, there's something in her brain that's making her think that way. Or you could chalk it up to religion and say, oh, well, mm. you know, she's an atheist and she that's just God speaking to her. Where does the truth lie? Right. I don't know. Right. And what effect did, you know, the in the book, Amelia's father talks about like we gave you to those vultures, meaning the church. Yeah. And what what effect that has and had. That was really hard because um, you know, uh, it's it's really popular now the whole reach out thing. Mm. Um, bipolar strong, you know, neurodiversity, you know, all this stuff. I I just I can't get into it because I was raised to be ashamed of it mm. and not just by my parents um, because, <clears throat> and they've changed a lot um, and are incredibly supportive. And I'm very lucky that they've turned into such a support system, but they, they were clueless. They didn't know what to do with their daughter who had no history of trauma or abuse or neglect or anything, or even a death in the family. Mm. How do you deal with that? You say, maybe it's a spiritual problem. We'll have her talk to her youth pastor. You don't know that the youth pastor is going to tell her that she's inadequate for God's healing, mm. that she doesn't deserve it. You don't know that's what he's going to tell her. And that's what they told me. Wow. And um, I remember... The only time, and we didn't talk about it. We did not talk about our emotions. In fact, the day that I attempted suicide was the first time I told my family members that I loved them when I talked to them on the phone. Like we didn't, we didn't used to say that. So that was the first time I said that. You know, maybe they did try because there was a, a night where... Uh, I was at youth group, God, I guess I was 16 years old, maybe 15. And we had to write a Bible verse that summed up what we thought God's plan for our life was. And I knew the Bible back and forth, and I knew exactly what verse to use. And I'm real sorry, I don't have it in my head right now, but um, basically it says... Just as the potter can turn the clay into a vase, does he not also have the right to shatter it upon the ground? Mm. And that's the verse that I wrote. And I didn't sign my name on it. And my youth pastor contacted my parents and it became this huge thing. And oh, like, wow. I had to go to counseling and this Christian therapist, she didn't know what to do with me. I was telling her about seeing demons. What did she know about that? She probably got her fucking little certificate on Christ.com. I don't know where these people are certified. 
You know, what do you say to someone who's seriously mentally ill when all you're used to dealing with is, oh, my parents are divorced and I'm super sad about it. Yeah. So like part of me has to let that go and say it's not their fault. Mm. It's not their fault. They just didn't know any better and hope that now in the future with things like requiring continuing education credits and that kind of thing that maybe they'll have a better understanding and hopefully reading books like Practical Blasphemy that spell it out in technicolor. Yeah. You know? I asked Elle about living now, what it's like for her. She told me about managing her medication and about her role model, Marvin, who's a character in the book and in her life, and about when she has to choose to put herself back into the hospital for medication management and adjustments. And we got back to the subject of TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. Remember the doctor with the Bible on his desk? They told her she was not a viable candidate. So you, did you come off of a different medication in preparation for TMS? No, I just, I was in euthymia for about a year. Euthymia is um, like normal. Okay. And so I think to myself, like, there's nothing easier than enjoying my life. I have a great life. I have a great husband. I have a great job. I have great dogs. I have everything great. I'm very happy. It's very easy to enjoy my life. And then that stopped. And I had an episode, a dysphoric episode. So the difference between depression and dysphoria is that depression is feelings like sad Mm. and worthless and hopeless. Those are feelings. Dysphoria is like ripping the shower curtain off the wall because it touches your leg. Mm. It's like the wind is blowing on you too hard. It's like God has singled you out to annoy you for the day. So I had a dysphoric episode, started researching TMS, went into a depressive episode, which honestly is better than dysphoria. And coincidentally, that's the state she's in when Amelia goes into the hospital. She's in dysphoric hypomania. Everything is negative. There's no such thing as pleasure. There's no such thing as happiness. It's just all I I guess could best be described as curiosity. Like that's the only reason to live would be curiosity and and fuck Mm. things up for fun. So um, anyhow, but all the antidepressants have all those side effects too. So why can't I at least try it? Why can't I try it? You know, and it make me puke for a week. And it's not going to make me fat and it's not going to make me lose my hair. And it's not, you know, like the side effects to these things are terrible, are absolutely terrible. I just don't understand why, even though they have the same side effects, one is approved and one is not approved. Yeah. I mean, you told me you were just devastated and. Yeah, I'm so pretty devastated. I'm seriously having like serious, serious psychological problems right now, but. I can't do anything about it, so do you, <laughs> I don't know what to do. And your husband's so, not there. No, he is not. He is uh, out of the country. 
So, uh, I just, you know, I don't, I don't want to go back in the hospital again. It's a terrible place. Mm. Somebody's got to take care of my dogs, you know, and sometimes you just have to suffer. And if that means I have to go back to work and I love my job, I love my job. It's just that I am a nihilist absolutely 100% a nihilist. I don't think that anything matters. So if I think that something even in the slightest bit is important, that's huge for me. Hmm. And so that includes my relationships and that includes my work. So I'm doing my best. I'm, I'm, going back to work next week and I'm going to try to take it easy. But this whole time I was, I was expecting to be getting treatment. So what do you do in this situation? Do you have someone you can go to for support? Well, um, part of the reason we decided to live in this part of the country is because my family is nearby. Okay. Um, my sister has been coming to visit and my father and I had a movie night last night. We watched Gattaca, but, um, since I'm returning, since I'm returning to work next week, I won't be able to have those opportunities anymore. And, uh, on weekends, I guess I can go to the farm. A lot of times Mm. they visit on the farm on Sundays and we have like a meal. That led Elle into some really funny stories about her family that we won't include here due to privacy reasons, but we laughed a lot about those and and many other things. You know, it's interesting, that happened a lot during our conversation. You know, we dive into the hard stuff and then we'd kind of go off and joke about stuff for a while and have fun and and then we'd come back. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly what that says, except that, you know, talking about this is hard for everyone. Can you imagine being Elle and talking about it? She wrote a book about it. Anyway, eventually we came back to Marvin. Elle told me about what she had learned from Marvin in that first visit to the psych ward, the one in the book. Marvin is a stockbroker and he has put himself in this particular hospital because it costs the least amount. Um, and he he only needs the minimum. Marvin has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and put himself into the hospital on his own volition for medication management, so for an adjustment. And that man became a role model for me. Mm. And I try to always keep him in mind in the way that he taught me that there is a way to manage something that you're not truly responsible for, but still owe a responsibility to others for Mm. with grace and self-compassion. And um, so he in particular uh, really affected me in the way that I approach treatment now. If you're listening now and you're worried about Elle after some of what she so 
openly talked about in the last 10 minutes. Let me tell you that part of the TMS consultation was uh, genetic testing that allowed for her medication to be further adjusted. And she got on something else. And when I spoke to her a couple weeks after this conversation, she was doing much better. It's a give and take, she tells me. It's a constant process of management. What's important to remember is that this constant work is a matter of life and death for many people. There's a line in the book when Dr. Stevens, the psychiatrist, says to Amelia, quote, You can have a healthy life without thoughts of suicide. You can have a steady job and stable relationships. You can also apparently get to a place where you can read a book about your experience. But it might be hard to sell. Oh, man, it's hard to sell a book like Practical Blasphemy. Um, It it is an assault. It's a hard book to read. You have to commit to reading it. And Mm. once you do, you'll be grateful that you did because you'll see that it does have worth. It has worth. It doesn't just have like interest or, you know, a unique story or whatever. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. But it does it does have worth in its verisimilitude. And I think that um, the hardest thing, you know, we we rely on word of mouth. The big publishers, I mean, next time, I, I don't know how many listeners shop at Costco, but I don't have very much money. So I shop at Costco sometimes. Same authors on that table mm. every week for my entire life. King. Collins, you know, like I, it's just, they're yeah. all always up there. There's never any new writers. Could you imagine putting practical blasphemy up there? Could you imagine <laughs> someone to the first page? Hold on. It's my hands. Turning to the first page of a book in Costco while you're eating a little sausage, sausage, croissant, toothpick treat. And you read, I want to cut off my eyelids. Is that a book to buy? <laughs> no, and I can't. And the, and my first thought after the very first chapter, man, there are so many people in the world that just will not read this book. Would not. I gave I gave copies to several people who did not read them. I gave my free author copies to several people who did not read them. They said, I opened it up. I started to read the first chapter. I couldn't do it. I'm sorry. And I'm like, motherfucker, that's $16. Like you can like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Ship that back to me or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like, come on. Like I'm not, I'm not, you know, fucking Suzanne Collins here. I'm not making fistfuls of money over hunger games, you know, like, <laughs> Word of mouth, I need people to say, hey, look, you should read this. Hey, look, you should read this. And that's why I give them to my psychiatrist, because I want them to turn to their psychiatrist friends and say, hey, if you want a window into bipolar disorder with with psychosis, you should read this book. It's a really short read, you know, it, and it really is. It takes me about four hours to read it. But yeah, I, yeah, it's not a long read. It is. So. So I'm trying to to do that. I would like I'd like to see in academia, honestly. Yeah, I mean it seems like it ought to be required reading. Yeah, right? I know, right? I like to see it I want I I would like it to have some kind of impact. 
Yeah. Um, that can be an individual impact for a reader who maybe never quite understood. Or that could be an impact for a psychiatrist who never thought about it that way. Or a student who never thought that they would see those use, those words used in print. <laughs> because mm. um, in case the readers don't know, there are lots and lots of uh, triggers. Yeah, lot, lots of triggers for sure. Lots of triggers. Lots of inappropriate language, lots of homophobia. Um, but things that actually you experienced in the psych ward. Yes, yes, actual things. And let me tell you, I just have to go on record saying this motherfucker Maxwell, oh my oh, man. Oh my God, I swear to you, I did not exaggerate him at all. Wow. He and Rosemary and the Jack Off, mm. although I will say the Jack Off, actually, when he originally came up to me. The Jackoff is a character in the book who repeatedly exposes himself to Amelia. My father was sitting in the chair across from me. Oh my God. Yeah, I took that out of the book because I thought that maybe that was not believable. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that, that, that's a funny sentence. Not funny, but that's a sentence to hear. No, no, no. It's true. So, um, so yeah, no, I did not exaggerate uh, Maxwell or Rosemary or the Jackoff. They used that language. They were terrible and not uncommon in the psych ward, honestly. Mm. So, Elle prefers that you buy Practical Blasphemy directly from the publisher, Anti-Book Club. If you read ebooks, you can still get Anti Book Club publications in Kindle form on Amazon. However, due to a multitude of issues, the publisher is no longer selling hard copies on Amazon. And we'll learn more about that when Gabriel from Anti Book Club comes onto the show. Elle told me that interested readers should go to practicalblasphemy.com to find a link. And when you buy on Amazon, you know, you're paying Amazon. And honestly, our publishers take a hit from that. Yeah, I know. But if you want to support Anti-Book Club, which is just like, I mean, unparalleled in the mm. type of content they put out. If yeah. you want to support Anti-Book Club, then just click on the first link that comes up. It says you can buy here at Anti-Book Club, you know, Practical Blasphemy, the New Testament. Click on that, buy it from there. Um, also on my Twitter account, the pinned tweet is to the anti-book club website, not to Amazon. Great. So you can do that either way. Um, but just know that you're not just supporting like a writer who likes to write. You're also supporting a one-man book publishing machine mm -hmm. that is Gabriel Levinson. Yeah, he, he's incredible. I contacted um, him as well, and he's agreed to come onto the podcast too, which I thought oh, would be... Yeah, Good. I thought that'd be really great. That's the thing about Gabriel and Anti-Book Club. Um, I'm really lucky that he gave me the chance and that he gave me the encouragement. Yeah. You know, and Practical Blasphemy would not be a novel today hmm. if it weren't for Gabriel Levinson and Anti-Book Club. Okay, uh, well, before I let you go, let me ask you one more question. What one piece of advice would you give our listeners, a bunch of strangers that you don't know? 
Um, well, there's this whole uh, thing right now about reaching out, reaching out when you need help. And um, it's really hard to reach out, especially when you think that, you know, you're worthless or you're not important or you're a burden. So 99% of the time, if you ask someone who is struggling um, how they're doing, they're just going to say fine. They're going to say I'm fine because they don't want to be a burden. They don't want to be something that you have to worry about or something inconvenient or something boring. Um, so when you're concerned about someone and you ask how they are and they say fine, ask again. Give an example of what concerns you. Like, um, you know, are you, are you sure you never come out with us anymore? Are you sure, you know, you never play music anymore? Or something specific, something specific. And ask twice because they their instinct is going to be to placate you with I'm fine. And that is a lie. It's a lie, but it's not meant to protect them. It's meant to protect you. So if someone says, if you, if you're worried about someone and you ask them, Hey, are you okay? And they say, Oh, I'm fine. You know, things have been stressful at work. I'm fine. Ask them again. Just that second, just that second chance. That second question can make a difference. Are you sure? Because we used to always go out on Tuesdays for a Tuesday taco night, but, um, you don't do that anymore. And that gives them a chance to either say, oh, well, I took on this new job and I can't, you know, and explain themselves. Or it gives them a chance to say, I just can't do it anymore, man. I, I can't do it. It's too much. So it gives a second chance. So always, always ask twice. Practical Blasphemy, as Elle mentioned, is actually a pretty short read. It's a difficult book to read, but at the same time, it's hard to stop reading it. I had to take a break halfway through just to let my subconscious process and my system recover a bit, and I read the rest of it the next day. But however you experience it, a chapter at a time, all in one go, it doesn't matter. But I do urge you to find a day on which you feel strong and read Practical Blasphemy, the New Testament. In addition to finding the link to buy it on practicalblasphemy.com, you can also find a link on our website, irregularpeople.show. And there you'll also find the beautiful cover of the book and more links to Elle's work, poetry, and social media. I'm also working on building a non-YouTube version of the soundtrack, which I'll make available on Mixcloud so that there's a version out there without ads. Elle is not big on technology, and I, when we were talking about other ways she could do it, she was like, yeah, I'm just not going to do that. So she gave me permission to, to work that out, so I'm going gonna, gonna to make that happen. If you're interested in that, I'll be sure to update on our social media and website. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to some of Elle's story today. And if you want the whole story, well, you know what to do. Irregular People is a production of Once Upon a Westler. Today's episode was produced, engineered, and edited by me, Calvin Marty. 
I also composed and performed all the music, and oh, you know the drill by now. It's just me over here, and you over there. And I'm glad you're over there. I'm glad we can connect this way, so thank you. I want to give huge thanks again to LJT for her willingness to speak with me and to Anti-Book Club. Special thanks to Willem Terrace for his consulting, insights, reminders, and encouragement. And to Megan Marty, my sister, who voiced the trigger warning at the beginning of the episode. If you want to find other ways to connect and support, check out our website, irregularpeople.show. And feel free to email me at listen at irregularpeople.show with questions, comments, guest suggestions, or otherwise. Thanks for listening. Keep listening. Do you have a favorite color? Yeah, actually, my favorite color is orange. All right. I know it's really strange. Um... My favorite color to wear is black. My favorite color is orange. There's this Rene Magritte painting. I I don't remember what it's called, but... I'm pretty sure the painting she's referring to here, by the way, is called The Banquet. It was in the Art Institute in Chicago, and I used to go on Free Student Tuesdays, which is actually, funnily enough, in the book. I used to just sit in front of this painting and stare at it. And it was a, it was a background of trees. It was a dark background. And then it had this bright red, orange, like assaultive, like just aggressively orange, red color. Hmm. And I would just stare and stare at it and write poetry about it and spend time just obsessing over it. I just loved it. So like that, like, bright orange for some reason i don't know it just like lights something up and maybe maybe it's like a fire thing maybe it's a fire i love fire um but i don't wear orange obviously because i'm not 20 years old and (laughs) i don't wear orange either can't do it